actually started struggling with some shortness of breath in uh, only in hard efforts and hill sessions and things like that. When I started training again towards the end of 2017, I, I was noticing the same sensation in training. So I went and got a blood test and I think my ferritin was six or something and my hemoglobin was low too, so I was actually anemic at that point. Hello and welcome to The Long Munch, the nutrition podcast for runners, cyclists and triathletes. I'm your host, Steph Gaskell, and I'm joined by my co-host, Alan McCubbin. How are you, Alan? Yeah, pretty good, Steph. Been out on the mountain bike over the weekend, which was great. I haven't been out for a ride on proper trails for a very long time. It's been riding with kids mostly, so <laughs> that was good. Yeah. Nice to uh, to ride some trails rather than ride to and from primary school. Um, so that was that was fun. Um, and sat through a really interesting presentation today, actually. One of the PhD students in our department at Monash University, Nathan Cook, uh, shout out to Nathan. He's doing his PhD around food waste yep. uh, and some of the environmental aspects around food waste in hospitals, which is obviously a massive issue. Uh, yeah. So a really interesting presentation. I really enjoyed that. So, yeah, it's been good. Yeah. Back in back in the uni and doing lots of face-to-face meetings again, which feels kind of normal, which is nice. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. And not too far away and you'll be cracking into um, getting your study started mm. again. Yeah, absolutely. We're sitting down over the next week or two and uh, starting to, to look at the preparations for that because we're going to do a big cook-up in the kitchen to make a whole lot of food to feed a whole lot of participants. So, yeah, oh. planning's underway. Kitchen fun. Ugh. <laughs> yeah, long days. I, of... I do not miss that. I've gotten out of that in this study. I am oh. so thankful. Although I'm yep. probably going to be roped into helping you, aren't I? <laughs> oh, probably. Well, you are now. You just put your foot in it. <laughs> anything for you, Alan. Anything for you. Oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Um, well, here at the Long Munch, we take a deep dive into the most common nutrition questions that runners, cyclists, and triathletes ask. Might be at your training session or after when you're having coffee together. Um, and we, our aim is to break it down and um, invite a guest expert in the part A part of it. And then we have an athlete in what we say as the part B um, part of that question. Um, and we are on social media. We are on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and on all your um, common popular um, podcast platforms. So today's um, podcast, who do we have, Alan? Yeah, so episode 8B today, Steph. So our topic continuation, obviously, from last week, do I need iron supplements? Uh, obviously, we had a great um, great podcast with Pete Peeling all about that from his expertise and, and research knowledge. Uh, and today we're going to speak to an athlete who has kind of been there and done that in terms of you know iron deficiency and, and taking supplements and, and even iron infusion as well. So um, distance runner Ellie Pashley is going to be joining us today. So really looking forward to chatting to Ellie and, and hearing a bit about her story with, with iron deficiency and, and how that's gone for her. Awesome. Can't wait to get stuck into it. Yeah, absolutely. And Alan, we've got some social media shout outs, I believe. Yeah, absolutely. A few people have been in contact with us over the 
the last week or so, which is always great, and we um, we really appreciate that, uh, whether it's feedback, whether it's suggestions for, for topics that you'd like covered. Uh, as you said earlier, we're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, at The Long Munch, for all three of those. Um, but we've also had a, a nice review on Apple Podcasts from uh, an elite paratriathlete, actually, David Bryant, who is also a sports dietitian. So shout out to David over there in Perth, and he trains with... Um, Danielle Stefano, who's also Emma Jeffcoat's coach, ah. uh, who I, I work with. Um, yep. And so, yeah, Emma was obviously on the podcast back in episode 2B. Uh, but, yeah, thanks very much for the, the review uh, and, and the rating, David. Thanks, David. So we have the lovely Ellie Pashley uh, on today's episode. Ellie is a 10,000-metre and marathon runner who's represented Australia at the World Champs in Doha. And she's also a Tokyo 2021 Olympic hopeful for, I believe, both the 10K and and the marathon. And she's actually coached by Julian Spence, who we had on Julian in 3B. hydration in Doha. Yeah, that's it. Yep. Um, and she's, she's her best time for marathon, I believe is a 2.26, uh, which was at the Nagoya International Women's Marathon. And, um, her PB for 10K was at the, um, the world champs in Doha in a time of 31.18, Um, Ellie's also um, a a physio alongside being a running coach and she's from a small town uh, called Aries Inlet, um, which is just off the Otways, I believe. Yeah, down on the the surf coast there. Mm, Yeah, and um, she seems to be a a pretty hard worker. I've uh, read on a, a blog of the coaching website that Julian um, wrote about Ellie saying that she she doesn't complain, she shuts the frog up, I'll say, and gets gets it done. She runs hills and trails daily in the dark with a headlamp on, works nearly full-time, runs workouts down the back roads of a country town, coaches 20 athletes herself and never once has she complained about any of this interfering with her training. Um, so, yeah, a hard worker and um, I think just like Julian is as well. So can't wait to get stuck into this one. And um, I, I do believe just by, by checking the recording, we have my lovely little cavoodle Cooper um, interfering at times in this one, Alan. <laughs> Yeah, I try to edit him out. Uh, I don't think he's managed to make an appearance yet. So he's, I, he did I can't in this remember. one, right? Okay. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, so a few shouts in there. So that that's good. He's finally gotten what he's wanted. So maybe he'll stop Let's barking now. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> awesome. Let's uh, let's get stuck into it. Yeah. Let's do it. All right, Ellie Pashley, welcome to the Long Munch. How are things? Yeah, things are good. Thanks for having me, guys. This is a very interesting topic to me, so glad to be here. Yeah, obviously, you know, very interesting topic to a lot of people, 
you know, hence why we're having this discussion today. And, you know, we've had our episode with, with Pete Peeling where he sort of talked about how common this issue is, obviously, for, for runners, cyclists and triathletes. Um, I want to start off, though, just talking a little bit about, you know, where you're at in 2021 and, and what's sort of on the agenda for you. I mean, you've had obviously success across a, a range of distances, everything from sort of 5K through to the marathon over the last couple of years. Um, you had, you know, an eighth at the, the New York Marathon in, I think it was 2019. Uh, 227 uh, and also you, you won the 5k frenzy a couple of weeks ago 5k I would say is definitely not my strong point I tend to I tend to like the longer distances so anything from yeah 10k half marathon marathon is yeah yeah where I feel a bit more comfortable I think yeah Fair enough. Well, that was going to be my question, so you preempted that well. Um, so, so in terms of uh, goals for this year, what, what's uh, sort of what are you working towards, and, and what's happening with you training-wise? Yeah, so um, we're hoping this year that the Tokyo Olympics happens. So that's that's my main goal, I guess. I'm aiming to uh, try for selection in either the marathon or the 10k there. But yeah, we're still waiting on clarification that it's definitely going ahead and and our team hasn't been selected yet so we're we're still a few months away from that but um i'm back into full training load now i I had a couple of injuries last year and then i did a london marathon in october so it took me a little while to get back from that but yeah i'm back up to almost full full mileage and just plugging along at home i guess with my usual training weeks two sessions a long run and lots of easy runs in between so we're just trying to find as many races as we can now because last year there weren't many racing opportunities it's it's all about getting back into the swing of racing so yeah I'll be doing some track races over the next couple of months yeah cool and London last year was it last year's race it was absolutely atrocious like just pouring rain the whole day yeah, it was. It was uh, not a very nice day and it was a 2.2k loop that we had to do 20 odd times. So it was a <laughs> it was a pretty challenging one. But I mean, we were really lucky that we actually had the opportunity to race. So mm. I, yeah, I was happy to go over and, and have a crack and didn't end up being the conditions that we hoped for, but it was still good fun. Yeah, fair enough. Um, and we spoke to uh, Julian Spence uh, a couple of podcasts ago about the marathon at the 2019 World Champs, obviously, that, that he ran. Um, you were there as well, but you ran the 10K at that meet. Um, looking back and seeing what happened, particularly with the women's marathon, you must be pretty glad you, you did the 10K and not the marathon. Yeah, I was. Um, leading into it, that was my main uh, reason for deciding to do the 10k as well I I knew how hot it was going to be and uh, I mean the marathon is my favorite event but it meant that we had to I guess use one of our opportunities within the qualifying period to run a marathon would be in Doha um, in you know 40 odd degrees and I just wasn't too sure how my body would cope with that or with the recovery afterwards so I tried I decided to try and get the um, 10k time to do that instead which yeah like watching the women's marathon I think it was a couple of nights before our race and it was it was pretty scary to be honest um it was amazing how many girls did finish but yeah I was pretty happy to be not out on the roads and in the nice (laughs) cool stadium well that was gonna be my next question actually I don't think I've ever heard of an air-conditioned outdoor 
stadium before, but that's that's what you guys had over there. What was that experience like? It must have been a bit surreal. Yeah, it was pretty crazy. Um, I mean, it was still it was actually still quite warm inside. I think they they were blasting it as much as they could before each event, and I think they tried to cool it down for our race, just being a longer a longer event. But um, I dread to think what their power bill would have been because it was still open at the top mm. um, and they just had these big vents down near the track blowing cold air so it, it was pretty different and we weren't too sure how cool it was going to be so we were pleasantly surprised actually when we got there and we went and did a bit of a jog around the stadium on the first night and it was like outside feels like an oven and then walking into the stadium it was quite a bit cooler so I think it, they got it down to sort of mid-20s or so so yep. it was yeah, it felt very cool compared to outside. Mm. And could you feel it like blasting you like as you went past each one or is it far enough away that you didn't really notice? <laughs> no, I was hoping they might keep it on for our race so that it created a bit of a tailwind. Yeah, whirlpool. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't think, I think they were turning it off in between. Oh, so they okay. were trying to cool it down uh, between races. But yeah, I'm not, I'm not actually sure how strong the, the vents were, to be honest, but that would have been nice. Yeah. Awesome. So, Ellie, we wanted to have you have you on um, for a number of reasons, just because you're lovely and a great runner. Um, but also, just um, I know you've had um, some concerns, I guess, with your with your iron intake. Um, so, um, yeah, can you tell us, I guess, a little bit about how you've gone um, along with your iron, like how that's affected you in your training? Yeah, sure. So I have pretty much had a constant battle with iron deficiency for, to be honest, I don't know how long because I potentially had it for a long time before I ever realised. But the first time that I had a blood test for iron was at the start of 2018, I think. And the year before I'd gone and done Berlin Marathon in the September. And whilst I was training for that, I actually started struggling with some shortness of breath in uh, only in hard efforts and hill sessions and things like that. But I didn't really have time to do anything about it uh, before I went away. So I ended up just ignoring it. I went, I ran the marathon, it went okay. And then I got home and it, when I started training again towards the end of 2017, I, I was noticing the same sensation in training. So I went and got a blood test and I think my ferritin was six or something and my hemoglobin was low too so I was actually anemic at that point um and they said at that stage oh it's probably been low for quite a quite a while um and then since then it's been a bit uh yeah something that I've had to keep on top of with I've actually had quite a number of infusions and regular blood tests supplementation and it's I I think now I'm much better at recognizing the signs when it's dropping I think I actually can tell when it starts to go down now and then I usually try and get a blood test every three or four months and yeah yep. do what I have to do to to keep on top of it on top yeah and so who does the blood test for you do you see a sports physician or no so I've got it so the first time I was I just saw a local GP in Torquay and he referred me to a GP in Geelong who specializes in iron deficiency so I've been seeing him ever since um yeah but I I haven't actually really seen a sports doc about it to be honest but I've I've 
been working with Jess Rothwell, the sports yep. dietitian at the VIS as well. So cool. we've, we've been trying some different things uh, to see if we can, like altering other things in my diet, not just iron intake because my iron intake is actually really good, yep. um, but to see if we can alter the absorption. But, uh, yeah, it's it was working for a bit, but it, it seems to have dropped again. So, um, yeah, it's a bit of a constant battle really. So um, with the um, – did did they explain to you why your iron is going low? So did they sort of investigate, I guess, if there was anything happening um, medically or they just um, straight away put it down to, you know, kind of your training load? Um, yeah, I mean, like the different – I've seen a couple of different GPs over the last couple of years. Usually if I can't get into – my normal GP, I'll go and see someone else. And everyone actually has given me something uh, different, yeah, which is good. And I had one GP wanted to test me for celiac disease, which came back negative. Um, A couple of the others just think I'm mad, I think, how much I run and they just think that it's purely the um, damage to the red blood cells in my feet from all the pounding because who would ever want to run that much? Yeah. Um, and then other things like the gastrointestinal inflammation that you get with endurance exercise and potentially that's affecting my absorption. Mm. Um, like I guess just having that higher need for iron being a, a runner and being a female runner in particular. Mm-hmm. Um, Jess was, we talked about, we changed my diet a little bit around when I was taking the iron supplements Mm -hmm. and also my carbohydrate intake um, through certain parts of the day to try and make sure that there was never a time where I was in any energy deficiency. So she thought maybe the middle of the day I wasn't getting enough fuel and that was potentially affecting things there. So we've played around with a few different things like that to, Mm -hmm. yeah, to try. But they're the main things that have been explained to me, I guess. Yeah, yep. And with the um, iron supplementation, so um, when you take the oral iron supplementation, um, is there? Did they recommend a particular time of day and how frequent you should take that? Yeah, that's been really interesting as well. I've mm. heard all different things in regards to that. So I think initially they were telling me to take it at night before I went to bed. Um, thinking that overnight I would absorb better and then other people have said I was better off taking it around the time that I was exercising because that would be when my body was looking for iron and mm-hmm. and trying to utilize it I guess mm-hmm. um, with food some people have said without food mm-hmm. some people have said so there's yeah I've tried all different times of day essentially and I guess the main thing I've tried to avoid is taking it around the time that I'm having a coffee mm-hmm. or any sort of dairy um, just to try not to inhibit absorption that way. But, yeah, that's also been fairly different. And did they, do you have like a certain dose that they've um, recommended or not Not too sure? Uh, not really. So uh. like talking to Jess about it and the supplement that I've been taking most recently is called Iron Sustain, the biosteuticals one. Yep. So, yeah, she was sort of saying depending on training load a little bit 
one or two tablets a day. The GPs seem very wary of me taking too much, worrying about me having too much iron, which has never been a problem. <laughs> um, so he, the GP that I saw most recently said every second day, and like I've been taking, I usually take one tablet every day and I'll occasionally uh, double dose if I'm at altitude or in a really heavy training week or something like that. But yep. um, yeah, that, yeah, again, I probably haven't been myself. Um, I haven't been too rigid with that or yeah. sort out too much information about that. Yeah. And did you get any um, gut, you know, because a, a big thing is um, when people take iron supplements and it can depend on the type of supplement that they're taking, um, a common complaint can be GI symptoms. So some people get like a real common one is constipation. Some people can get nausea stomach pain um did you experience any of that like from you know when you first kind of supplemented with iron or um yeah when I initially uh did I was taking ferrograd c yeah so that did upset my stomach a little bit I think I just I just I just felt probably a little bit uncomfortable in the stomach after taking it it, it, it didn't have any long lasting effects um but yeah, that that didn't really seem to help my iron levels either. So I took that for a few months, and then someone suggested the this other one, the Biocuticals one, and that I haven't had any gut issues with. That's actually been really good from yeah. that point of view. I think perhaps if occasionally when I take two a day, maybe a little bit, um, yeah, maybe a little bit of an upset stomach, but I've never been constipated or anything like that. Yeah, from the tablets, as far as I know. Yeah, that's good. Um, yeah, and it can sometimes be, yeah, just that dosing. Um, so um, I know like some people might start with like 100 milligrams of elemental iron and then if if they are experiencing symptoms, um, they can actually dial that down to either like 60 um, or what they do is they do, do alternate days. So there's been some research to show like if you do supplement daily um, versus alternate um, days, like do you still get kind of the same benefit in terms of, you know, iron absorption? Um, and largely it's comparable. There's like it there, you can get a bit of a better effect by taking it daily, um, but it's, it's not significant enough in terms of if you got gut symptoms, then people just kind of do that by daily. So... Um, but possibly where you maybe where you don't have symptoms with this one might be also a, a dosing thing or how it is released. Um, yeah. Um, any additions to that, Alan? No, no. I mean, I guess uh, you know, talk about the biocuticals product versus the um, the ferrograd C. They are different forms of iron, so that's probably mm. why um, you know ferrous sulfate, which is you know, Ferrograd C and, and other similar mm. products uh, is the one that's probably most notorious for gut problems, but there Excellent. are other forms. Um, I guess the, the tricky part, though, is, you know, a lot of the other forms of iron aren't as well studied in terms of uh, how well they can correct a deficiency compared to ferrous sulfate, which I think is why uh, Ferrograd is usually recommended because it's the one that has the most research. Uh, it's not to say that the others don't work. There just hasn't been the same amount of studies on it, so it's hard to say. Mm. with with as yeah. much confidence of it and apart from you know you know for, for each individual you take it and you get a blood test and you see whether it's worked or not so you know it's either mm. works for you or it doesn't mm. yeah and it can take quite a while too for the 
oral iron supplements to kind of kick in too. But like, you know, you said you took it for a few months and it still wasn't making a difference at one stage. So obviously. Yeah, lot, I've yeah. been taking it pretty much since 2018 yeah. consistently. And like I'll, I usually have a bit of a break after I've had an infusion. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, it's it it's definitely delays the drop yeah, yeah, and yeah. I can get through a longer period of time without being iron deficient but mm-hmm. it still doesn't seem to be enough to stop it from happening stop it yeah mm-hmm. and so with your iron infusion um tell us about that so um what um I guess what how do they decide that you know you're going to take that versus oral iron um supplementation yeah so usually when it gets really low is always almost in a marathon block so it's as soon as my mileage goes up it drops Mm -hmm. and it's often been the infusion has been the answer because I've had a limited amount of time before my race so it might be six weeks out or something and I get a blood test and my ferritin's 10 or whatever Mm -hmm. and they that's been I guess the um what we've been using to combat it just because we don't have enough time to try and get it back up with supplements and yeah so that like initially I was I probably had to have them every six months almost and now it's like I haven't had one for 12 months at the moment but it's heading back in that (laughs) direction direction. so yeah it but it definitely to me it seems to be very related to my running my training mileage as soon as I get to around 130 140 k's a week it it drops really quite quickly and so that's been yeah leading into races usually yeah and how quickly do you notice like in terms of like when you've had that infusion um how quickly do you notice yourself that you're starting to feel better I guess for you the symptoms have been the breathing and and um not feeling as good in training um yeah, yeah, usually about two weeks. Okay. So after a week, I probably start to feel a little bit better. And yeah. then I reckon two to three weeks is when I really Pick feel up. back to normal. Yeah. The yeah. first one I had that, I've never had anything so drastic as that. That was that was crazy how different I felt three weeks after yeah. I'd had the infusion. Um, yeah. So it's not quite as drastic now, but it definitely, yeah, it makes a big big difference difference yeah well, yeah you're not starting from as quite a lower base as last yeah. time yeah I think so <laughs> yeah yeah and then you continue to supplement with oral do you so you sort of have the injection and then yeah I usually wouldn't um supplement for and this is probably something as well that I actually haven't really been guided on it's more what I just have made up but yep. I I figure I stay away from from supplementing for like eight weeks or so just because I know it peaks is it around six weeks after the infusion usually yeah yeah I think so and it well I think and it can take yeah three or four weeks sometimes for people to notice a difference so Mm. yeah and then it would only be if I um if I was still leading into a race after that amount of time I might start to take them a little bit again or if I was going to altitude Mm. Mm mm-hmm so yep. it sounds like, you know, both on the way down and the way back up, you know, as your iron, your ferritin drops and then as it rebounds, like it's it's a noticeable effect for you. You can feel it in both directions. 
Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, I think I'm much more in tune with now and it's dropping as well. And like the reason that I got a test this week was because I was thinking, oh, also I knew that my, my, my volume had got back up and I'd had about a month at 140 Ks a week, which is usually when it does drop quite quickly. But I just also was starting to feel a little more, a little more tired. And there's just a few uh, subtle symptoms that um, yeah, make me think, oh, I probably should get that checked. Mm, yeah. And, and I can so, usually tell. Yeah. And so from a ferritin, I think you mentioned like often by the time you get to that infusion stage, your ferritin's down around 10-ish. What's the sort of level of rebound you get from there? Like where does it go back up to, like within a couple of weeks or three weeks or whenever you have your next blood test? Yeah. Um, I'm pretty slack at getting the follow-up blood test at six weeks. <laughs> But it goes up to around, I think the highest it's ever been is actually about 150. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't go super high. Um, and that would have been maybe two months or so after I'd had the infusion that I got that test. Yeah. So, yeah, it it gets up. Maybe I might have had one that was a little higher actually after an infusion. So it gets up somewhere between 150 and 200. Yeah. And with the infusion itself, because um, you can have injections and you can have infusions, do you want to describe the actual process of the infusion, like what that involves? Is it something you do at a GP clinic or do you have to go to a hospital for it? Like what's involved with it? Yeah, so um, the, the GP clinic that I go to, they do it there and it involves you have uh, a nurse and a doctor working together and it. I have never had an injection. I've always had an infusion. but. Because of um, anti-doping, I'm only allowed to have a certain amount of saline via IV. So I have to have a high concentration in my infusion. So it's iron with a little bit of saline to sort of help wash it through. But I think my maximum amount of anything I can have via an IV is 100 mils. So they usually have the iron infusion is 30 mils or so, is it? Oh, I can't remember off the top of my head, no. Yeah, and then they usually mix it with 60 mils of saline instead of, I think the protocol is they usually do about 250 mil of saline, mm -hmm. but it's it's a lesser a lesser dose for me. So, yeah, it, it takes about half an hour and you just sit there in the treatment room basically um, on a drip of iron and <laughs> saline. Mm -hmm. um, I've never really had any reactions to it, but that the reason that you have the nurse and the GP there is, I think, because people can react. Um, they check your blood pressure before and after, uh, make sure you're not having any sort of reaction, and then I think you have to sit there for half an hour or so, and then you leave and go home. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I had one recently too, Ellie, um, when I went down to Adelaide. Yeah. Um, and, um, yeah, I know that with – they used to get, I think, a lot more side effects with the with the infusions, but now um, I think they might have changed the formula a bit. So there's perhaps not certain preservatives in there. So yeah, some people respond a bit better. But um, yeah, they used to have a lot of anaphylactic reactions or something, didn't they? Mm, yeah, the old ones. So yep. they had to do them in hospitals. Yeah. Yeah. Mm, yeah, because I mean, I guess the majority of people that have eye infusions are. Uh, are not athletes necessarily. It's uh, people with chronic diseases. You know, kidney failure is a common one where you get low iron because it affects your um, your EPO production and things like that as well. So, and and your older people. So I think that's often where a lot of the reactions tend to occur. But obviously, you have to take the same precautions 
for everyone regardless. Yeah. Um, so I guess in terms of um, like away from supplementation, um, what have you been um, doing, I guess, with Jess in terms of the dietary side of it? Yep. So with Jess, I did, I've done a few rounds of basically just a food diary and a training diary for her. And we just looked at, well, first of all, we looked at my dietary iron intake, which is actually very high. I eat a lot of red meat, um, a lot of the non-heme iron stuff as well. So leafy greens and capsicum and all of that stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, We tried to make sure that I was having uh, enough vitamin C to help with the absorption. And then we looked at um, the energy, energy availability and she just... Like I was eating, I wasn't really eating any differently from day to day, even though some days I had much more, a much higher training mm-hmm. load than others. And the days that I work, I wasn't getting enough food in, in the middle of the day. So she thought that perhaps that had something to do with it. And we played around with just trying to get more, um, basically like high calorie drinks and things like that in to try and boost my carbohydrate intake through times of the day where I wasn't getting enough um yeah and that like they're they've probably been the main things that we we changed and initially it worked really well I got a blood test and my ferritin was 140 which is very good for like just a when I haven't had an infusion or anything but um I also was injured so I wasn't running that much (laughs) so it was hard to know at that stage yeah if if it was a combination or one or the other. Um, and then I've still been following the same protocol now that I'm back back training and, yeah, it has sort of started to drop again. So I've got to actually have another appointment with Jess soon to, to try and work out yep. what we're going to do next. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then how do things change for you? Like obviously you've done um, altitude training in the past. Um you know, Julian Spence talked about, you know, going to St. Moritz in the lead up to Doha and, and you were there as well. Um, how does that, how do you change the way you do your iron supplementation and, and testing and things, uh, you know, in the lead up and then during that? Yeah, so I went, uh, a couple of years ago, I went to altitude and when I got home, it was really low. Um, so the next time that I was going, I actually got a test just before I went and it was quite low. So I had an infusion before I left, uh, which, yeah, I actually felt so much better at altitude after having that. Um, And, yeah, I I mean, the first time I'd gone, I was taking supplements while I was there, but perhaps not as frequently as I should have been. And it's it's more just for me. I have to – I usually get it checked before I go to make sure that it's not, you know, getting getting low I guess just because I know what happens as soon as I go to altitude it it does tend to plummet so being prepared with having enough supplements to take while I'm there um, and then getting it checked before and after as well and then usually um, like when I get drug tested as well I can't see my iron levels but I can see my hemoglobin levels so that's actually quite handy to know um, after those stints whether there's been any increase or decrease in in hemoglobin and yeah usually if my iron if my iron's been okay before I've gone and I've kept it at a good level while I'm there then my hemoglobin will actually respond well to altitude training but I think the first time I went it had actually dropped 
when I got home, but I was also, yeah, quite iron deficient. So, mm. And so they give you a copy of like your, your blood results when you do a drug test as well? Yeah, yeah, you can, you can um, access them online afterwards, which is handy. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. So, Steph, do you want to say something? Um, no, so when you, so, so often say before altitude, you'll have, have an infusion or something if it's down. Um, and then when you're there, you supplement as well? If I had just had an infusion, I probably wouldn't. But if I hadn't, then I would. And and I I probably don't change things too much. I probably just stick with the one tablet a day that yeah. I do here. But yeah, I haven't I haven't probably done enough altitude to really work out. No, either what the best thing yeah is to yeah. do there. Yeah, but. yeah. Because um, I know there's that thought where potentially you supplement with iron like when you're over there at altitude and um, apparently there's a particular hormone I can't remember what it is Alan um, and that actually kind of I think dampens in a way the effect of hepcidin and so your body actually is better at absorbing and taking on board the iron um, when you're over at altitude Um, and so it it can be advantageous to to take the iron, and I mean, like generally, you're training quite quite a, an amount, and you need the oxygen, etc. So, um, yeah, and um, also <clears throat> the dosage can sometimes be a bit higher when you're at altitude, but I mean that's going to be very individual. Um, but yeah, that was something that I've heard Pete talk about um, just recently. Oh, that's interesting. That's good to know. Mm. Just on that um, topic of you know, anti-doping that we were talking about before, for any athletes out there that are you know subject to drug testing and, and haven't had to take iron supplements or have an infusion before, is there a specific process or things that they need to bear in mind around um, you know getting an iron infusion? I mean, you talked about obviously the the volume of saline in the drip, but apart from that, in terms of you know declarations and that sort of thing, what what do people need to be aware of? Yeah, so the iron itself is completely legal, obviously, and that's um, that you don't have to. I mean, it's all in my medical records if they ever wanted to seize my medical records. So the the only real thing is the limit on on the amount of fluid that you can receive via IV. Um, so I just always make sure that they yeah they keep it well below the the limit there, and that it's all recorded just in case. I don't think they're going to seize my medical records, but just in case they ever do. And then if um, I get drug tested I and I've been taking iron tablets, I just have to declare that. So you have a, a list where you can write down any supplements that you've taken or anything that you think they need to know about basically. So I'll just write, um, I think it's for the last seven days, so how many iron tablets I've had and what what dosage, so one tablet per day or whatever, and then that's all recorded there. Um, yeah, cool. but it's yeah. it's all completely legal, so it's not. Um, yeah, obviously, I wouldn't be yeah, yeah. having iron infusions if we weren't allowed to. But it yeah. is it is important to yeah be mindful of all those things and and particularly the saline because you would think why can't you know why can't you have saline via IV? But I think um, people were using it as a masking agent. So mm-hmm. uh, yeah. Yeah, basically, if you expand your blood volume too much, you can dilute everything that's in it. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So that's why that that rules there. Yeah, cool. <laughs> um, 
Yeah, I think that's a really important point because we do have, you know, sometimes some athletes who are not necessarily at the the really elite level and they don't get all their access to that sort of anti-doping education and, and training necessarily, but they're still subject to the rules of WADA and can still be randomly tested at a, a local meet or event or whatever it is. And it's not common, but it does happen from time to time. So people need to be aware of these sorts of issues. Uh, and the fact that, you know, as you said, you know, you've got to declare all, not only your prescription medications, but supplements and things when you take a test as well. And um, so it's important to keep track of, you know, what you're taking and how much and when and all those kinds of things. Um, yeah, and as you said, with the infusion, the, the volume is going to be important too. I think it might be time to kick off our bonus round then. Bonus round. This is fun. Yeah. Do you want to? Do you want a bonus, Steph, or do you want me to bonus? You can bonus, Ellie. I'll, bo- I'll bonus. <laughs> okay. No worries. So this is a bunch of questions that are not related to the the topic necessarily. So let's see how we go. Um, so if you could do anything besides what you're currently doing now, which is obviously running an awful lot, um, what would you be doing? Do you think? And besides physio. Yes. Besides physio, yeah. Well, <laughs> I probably wouldn't pick that anyway. <laughs> funny you say that because my wife's a physio and um, I wanted to do physio, didn't get into it, and now I know what they actually do. I'm really glad I didn't. <laughs> yeah. It's good sometimes. Yeah. Um, can you choose not working at all or do you have to pick some you sort could, of job? But you need, <laughs> yeah, option, tell, yeah, tell us what. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I mean, I think I'll, in theory, I think not working at all would be great, but I'm sure I'd get bored. So I'd love to be, I think I'd still like to be an athlete, um, mm-hmm. but maybe a different sport, maybe, maybe a basketballer or something a bit cooler. Yeah. Live in the US. <laughs> maybe well, not maybe not right maybe now. Maybe a couple of years. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Actually, that's a good point. Um, <laughs> Yeah, so I'd be a professional basketballer. Awesome. Professional basketballer. Cool. Do some slam dunks. <laughs> yeah, I'd also be six foot six and <laughs> much cooler than I am. Nice. Um, anything on your bucket list that you haven't done yet? Oh, this is pretty nerdy running bucket list, but um, I really want to do the Boston Marathon. Yeah. Yeah, so that's the... That's going to be my – the next time I have the opportunity to do a race that's just for fun, it's going to be Boston. Yeah. Is it anything specific about it? Is it the, the point-to-point course or is it the tradition or the quick times or what is it about the course or what is it about that event? Yeah, I think, um, like you said, that it's point-to-point. There is a lot of history around it. It's quite a challenging hilly course, which I actually quite like, hilly marathons and – if you get the conditions are completely all over the place so you can get a hot day you can get you know below zero temperatures wind rain you can have a tailwind the whole way or a headwind the whole way so yeah I sort of like the unpredictability of it and yeah it's it's just one that I've always wanted to do but it would be nice if you got it on a tailwind <laughs> 10 degrees celsius day but i don't think i'll be that lucky yeah well, one of the men sort of unofficially broke the world record on that course didn't he about five or ten years ago but yeah it can be really count. fast or really slow it's just yeah. yeah it's crazy cool um back to nutrition briefly is there sort of a key message that you think it's important for other runners to sort of 
get a hold of or, or understand um, around nutrition and their running? What are some of the things that I guess you've learnt over the years that you sort of think, oh, wow, I wish I knew that when I was younger or, um, or you know, earlier on in my career? Yeah, I mean, I think something that, that's important for people to remember and runners have a little bit of a tendency to be perfectionists with everything they do. So I think just trying to have a balance and, and recognising that eating a bit of everything is good and, you know, you don't need to be eliminating whole food groups um, to become better at running. And, you know, you hear all these all these different wild theories come out which I'm sure drives you guys absolutely mad but getting (laughs) advice from yeah (laughs) getting advice from the right people um not being afraid of eating carbs I don't really understand why anybody who runs thinks it's a good idea to not eat carbohydrates um yeah and they're they're probably the main things just having having that balance and enjoying I guess when you run a lot of a lot of k's you get to uh have a few treats which is which is good yeah yeah Awesome. Well said. Well said. Um, do you live by a piece of advice or motto? I don't have any good mottos, so. <laughs> yeah. Quick, make one up. We've, uh, we've had all sorts of everything from the super serious to the, the exact opposite. Yeah. Yeah, every time we ask people, we get all sorts of responses. Mm. That's all right. Uh, and no answer is still an answer. Yeah, I don't, yeah, I don't know. I think I'd. I just change every like few months I hear something and I think, oh, that's a really good analogy. So it probably changes all the time. Yeah. Um, this is a question that we ask pretty much everyone. What's your favourite beverage to have after a, a hard training session? Hard training session is chocolate milk mm-hmm. or a chalk ice up and go. Yeah. Good one. Yeah. Yeah. Now, Julian was very specific with this. It wasn't just chocolate milk. It was a specific brand of chocolate uh, milk. I bet you I know. Barista Brothers. Yes. Yeah. yeah I don't like Barista Brothers. Mm. Have you tried it yet, Steph? You've been suckered in by everyone's little uh, food tidbits on this podcast. Yeah, so far. yeah, I have had Barista Brothers. I don't know if I've had the chocolate one, though. I think I've had, like, a nice coffee or something. Yeah. Yeah. It's quite strong, but it's not very sweet. Sweet, yeah. Yeah, I like just a big M or an oak. A bit yep. of sweetness. In a carton too. For some reason, I think milk tastes better in a carton, yeah. carton but it's probably psychological. <laughs> oh, I think the taste of paper just adds something to it. <laughs> I don't know what it is, but I agree with you. The taste of chemicals probably. Yeah. Um, and finally, obviously you do a fair bit of travel with your running, um, both you know to, to regional places or, or internationally. Is there one thing that you can't live without when you're travelling that you have to take? Uh, yes, AeroPress. Oh, good one. Yep, I take that everywhere. So you enjoy your caffeine? Yep, I like my caffeine. I like my coffee. And I hate it if I'm going away, particularly for running, and I have to run in the mornings before I have brekkie or whatever. I can't run without having a coffee. I like having that in my room so I can make a coffee because yeah it doesn't make for an enjoyable runner pre-coffee run <laughs> how do you go with that with uh with baggage limits and things oh it's pretty good it's only like yeah 20 centimeters high or oh, something okay. so that yeah yeah you can fit them in it depends on how long you're going away for and how much ground coffee you have to take because yep. if you're leaving australia you know you gotta <laughs> be prepared yeah 
coffee will be variable. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's funny because you, you wanted to stay awake in our very first athlete podcast with Evan Dunphy. His was a pillow. Oh, really? It's a very specific pillow that he takes everywhere with him. So he's yeah. gone with the sleep. You've gone with not being asleep. Being yeah, that's yeah. funny. Yeah. Cool. Awesome. All right. Well, on behalf of both of us, Ellie, thanks so much for joining us. It's been great to hear about your journey in terms of iron deficiency and, and some of the, the practical things around, you know, how it's diagnosed, how it's treated, um, what are the sorts of issues around that and, and some of those practical things as well. So thanks very much. Yeah, thanks. Wish you well for um, Tokyo. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. Okay, great interview there with Ellie. Great to get her perspective and, and see what it's like as an athlete with iron deficiency. And as we heard, they're, you know, uh, pretty severe at times, you know, iron deficiency, anemia, and, and really um, you know, all the, you know, the symptoms of that as well. And, and obviously you had the experience across both iron tablets and, and the iron infusion as well. And, and, you know, raised a few important issues there uh, that we need to consider as well. So um, obviously we've had our discussion with Pete. We've had our discussion with Ellie. Um, that sort of closes the loop, I guess, on, on this question, do I need iron supplements? So do you want to just give us a, a quick summary, Steph, um, on, on where we are, where we're at with that question? Um, so first thing will be uh, just if you are feeling tired, uh, go get your um, bloods checked. Don't, you know, go straight to the store and, and get a supplement, a multivitamin or an iron supplement. Um, first of all will be to get your bloods checked and then based on your bloods, what your, um, what your levels are in terms of uh, ferritin, uh, transferrin, saturation, hemoglobin, iron, um, then that will, you know, influence what then the next stage is for your treatment. Um, and so, you know, whether it's iron depletion, iron deficiency or iron deficient anemia, um, will then determine what that treatment protocol is. Um, and then if we have, you know, iron, if we're in a range where it's iron deficiency, um, then usually that sort of first port of call would be um, if we can't improve it through through the diet and there's no obvious other, you know, medical condition underlying that um, and it is through perhaps high training or heavy training loads, then, um, then potentially looking at an oral iron supplement. Um, and then as we heard um, through talking to Pete and Ellie, there can be some individuals that may experience gut issues with particular oral iron supplements. And through talking to Pete, he mentioned that there's, there's you know, definitely certain iron supplements that can irritate the gut, um, particularly the ferrous sulfate types of um, supplements. Um, and also when they're probably a higher dose um, level as well. Um, and so he mentioned that there are some alternatives out there, uh, some supplements that are usually combined with a carbohydrate type like maltodextrin, one of them Mal being the maltosa. Yeah. Um, so there's, there's options in terms of, you know, if we, if we do get gut upsets, there may be options in terms of different forms of supplements um, and also potentially the dosing. So to talk with your... Um, uh, medical um, person about you know different ways that you can perhaps manage that it it can take um, I think it was eight to, to 12 weeks um, for 
those levels to actually improve. So oral iron supplements can work really well um, and effectively, but it's it's not a immediate response. You know, it does take a bit of time um, for that to to kick in, but it does. Um, and it's you know if we can use that versus other means um, in terms of injections or infusions where it's not necessarily needed, um, then that's usually the the preference, I guess. Um, and then if we do have uh, iron deficiency anemia, then that may then be where we do look at having an iron infusion. Iron infusions are more common now compared to injections, iron injections. Um, there is still a very small risk um, of anaphylactic reactions. However, the, um, the substances that are used now uh, and the preservatives tend to um, have reduced that, um, I, I believe. Uh, and there's a protocol that they go through as well when you do have those infusions, um, as Ellie spoke, spoke about in her podcast. Um, but that will get it up quite quickly. And so, you know, if you, uh, in Ellie's situation where she had, uh, you know, iron deficiency anemia and she needed to get her iron levels up quite quickly because it was either before an altitude training camp or a race, um, that was quite an effective treatment for her. However, as we saw, it wasn't something that then, okay, you take it and, it, and it's going to stay really good for a long period of time. Um, in her experience due to perhaps her training load um, and how she absorbs iron, um, she, she often would find it falling down again. So um, that's something, I guess, to be mindful of. And that's where then we spoke about, you know, um, well, then we want to actually monitor what our iron levels are to see, okay, well, each individual can um, vary in their response um, and let's get a repeat blood test. And, and maybe that's in eight weeks or, or 12 weeks time. Uh, and then based on that, you know, we can see what we need to do next. Um, and one of the important points as well is not to, the reason why we don't just want to take iron supplements without knowing what our actual levels are is because there are people that may develop or have hemochromatosis, which is where, you know, iron levels, if we if we do take a high dosage of it, um, then having a high amount in our body is, is not a good thing. It can be toxic to the body. So um, that's the reason we don't want to take it willy-nilly without knowing um, what it's doing in our body. Um, and then there was just the aspect as well as uh, when we spoke to Pete about, you know, when we're training and um and what happens in terms of the the master sort of iron regulator, which we call hepcidin, um, and how that plays a role in our iron absorption. Um, and so it was, you know, when we exercise, um, if if we exercise in the morning and we're thinking about when we're going to have our next meal and it's going to be iron rich. Ideally, if we can have that meal within about 30 minutes of when we're finishing that exercise, um, just because our, our hepcidin levels, when they're really high, they can interfere with our iron absorption. Um, and so having it soon after exercise, I guess the hepcidin levels aren't too high at that time or that's kind of what they've found in their research to be a kind of optimal, optimal time. So 
Um, yeah, was there anything else you wanted to add, Alan? Um, no, and I think I guess you know you're talking about that in terms of the timing of meals. I guess it's the mm. same with supplements. Um, mm. You know that that recommendations kind of chopped and changed as the research has kind of evolved over the last ten years. So, mm-hmm. you know where we're at at the moment is probably um, after a morning training session seems to probably be the best time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then in terms of the gut issues, you know you mentioned the Maltofa is is one uh, possible. Uh, solution for that for some people for other people that might be taking tablets every second day seems to reduce the the gi symptoms quite a lot yep. um, and can still be fairly effective not as effective as taking it every day but fairly effective, effective. yeah yeah and i mean i guess the the limiting factor there and you mentioned how long it takes for the iron to uh, improve with the oral supplements is because mm. the gut is kind of the limiting factor there in terms of how much iron you can take up. So you can just pump as many iron tablets as you want down there, but it's not going to necessarily get more into the system. It's just going to cause more gut issues as it's not being absorbed properly. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Definitely. And then I think it's just if athletes are going to some extreme environments where, you know, they're going to altitude, etc. Um, again, just a key thing, check your iron levels before you are going into that type of environment because, Obviously, we need to make sure we've got good levels of iron because it's an important part in in carrying oxygen. Um, So usually, you know, we want to get that tested prior and then depending on those levels, supplement in the lead up and then potentially during. Yeah, and getting that tested far in advance, Mm. uh, far enough in advance that you've actually got time to improve the level through supplementation. There's no point measuring it a week before you leave um, because it's kind of too late then anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then, as you said, you know, obviously your, your body's producing more red blood cells mm. uh, as the adaptation to altitude. That's the adaptation that we want. So uh, if, if, yeah, if things are a bit low on iron, then we can't uh, produce the, the hemoglobin into those blood cells. Then, you know, it's kind of not much point doing the altitude training, really. So, uh, yeah, to get the, get the most out of that training, we need to make sure we've got good iron stores to draw on during that, that altitude session. Yep. Mm. Yep. Yep. Yeah, I think um, hopefully a lot of people find it interesting. I know, um, as I've mentioned to you, a lot of um, people who I exercise or run with, um, it seems to be a common topic that that comes up in terms of iron and and not just for females, for males too. So, um, Mm. you know, it it can be a common one, which Pete did talk about the prevalence. You know, it's it's actually common in the general pop, um, but perhaps it is quite common in um in runners particularly as well yeah and certainly i I think based on the feedback we've had from people around the traps this week since that episode with pete came out um certainly i think a lot of people have have found it valuable um and and have been really interested in the topic as you said so it's great Mm. yeah Mm. awesome cool so um now we know all about iron uh i know another really common question that we get alan um what's that one do I really need to carb load? So we talked a little bit or sort of alluded to this a little bit um, back in episode 6A with uh, Dr. Tim Crow, yep. And he talked about, you know, different events and, and some of the confusion in nutrition. And one of those is like, in what scenarios do I need to, to really focus on my carbohydrate leading up to an event and, and to what extent 
Um, and so we thought, well, that's a great topic to, to cover because there's so many different distances, you know, whether it's running, cycling, triathlon, um, mm. so many different um, durations and, and distances to cover there. Um, you've got, you know, your elite athletes, you've got your recreational athletes who are more doing it for the enjoyment side of things. Does that change the need for carbohydrate or not? So there's a whole mm-hmm. bunch of different questions there that we can sort of crack into in okay. terms of, you know, do I really need to carb load? Um, so. Yeah. Our guest is going to be Dr. Jose Areta from um, Liverpool John Moores University in the UK. But as we'll hear next week, he's uh, travelled the world doing research (laughs) in in sports nutrition. Uh, He's also a cyclist and and a coach himself as well. So uh, he's done some really interesting research uh, looking at carbohydrate use in in different types of exercise, which is obviously what we're going to be talking to him all about and then putting that into a, a practical perspective in terms of, yeah, you know, under what situations would carb loading potentially be beneficial or not. Yep. Yeah, can't wait for that one. Mm, absolutely. All right, so just to wrap up, if anyone has any suggestions or feedback for us, uh, we'd love to hear from you. At The Long Munch is the handle on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. So I'd love to, to hear you hear your thoughts there or, or any suggestions for, for topics as well. So, um, yeah, love, love to hear from you. Um, so that pretty much wraps it up for today, Steph. Uh, but, yeah, looking forward to, to our next episode, 9A, with, with Dr. Jose Areta. Awesome. Can't wait. We'll see you then, guys. Will do. See you then.